Monday's here and with it, the Not The Top 20 podcast. Myself, Ali Maxwell, my friend and colleague, George Ellick, talking all things EFL after a busy weekend. A weekend in which away wins were all the rage. I make it 16 away wins in the 35 games that have been played as of recording with uh, Pompey heading to Charlton live on the box on Monday night. This podcast is sponsored by Betfair. We thank them for their support. Before we get into the weekend action, Barley Mumba, EFL Young Player of the Month. And as part of him being anointed as such, we were able to speak to him. little exclusive 15-minute interview that you performed with him over Zoom last week. What did you make of the talented young man? I like the idea of me and Barley performing together uh, as if up that left flank, uh, two inverted wide players. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a great man. It was, it was great to speak to him. His um, infectious nature... Uh, it was, you know, when I read out uh, or, or told him at the top of the interview, you know, I introduced him as uh, EFL Young Player of the Month. I've never seen a, a smile like it, if I'm honest. Uh, he seemed, he, he was a very, very humble young man um, who seemed just over the moon and delighted to be playing football for Plymouth Argyle, who was incredibly excited about the future with Norwich and um, enjoying his football. And, you know, I think maybe not so much these days, but footballers often get, a uh, a bad rep and especially young footballers um and i just couldn't he couldn't have been more uh the opposite of the stereotype he seemed very humble very happy to be there very generous with his time and just incredibly joyful um the way he plays football as well so it was it was a pleasure to to chat with him he goes straight into the EFL uh, all smiles team uh, with one of the great grins uh, up there with Ethan Laird, of course. Uh, Jon Dahl Thomason's the manager of that particular team. Uh, Georgie Kelly of Rotherham United. We're going to talk more about him later on. He goes straight into the team after a, an interview this weekend and a, a big old beaming grin. Uh, so who else should be in the EFL all smile team? Uh, let me know. Tweet us at NTT20pod. And if you'd like to watch the full interview with Barley Mumba and George Ellick chatting football and grinning at each other, head to our YouTube channel, Not The Top 20, uh, on YouTube and subscribe to it. Let's talk football. Good cop, Bedlam at Bramall Lane. Not the battle thereof, just pure Bedlam. The only draw in the championship. Ordinarily, the only game we wouldn't talk about, but this is a good use of the good cop feature. This is why we love football. It was incredible. Sheffield United 3, Blackpool 3, the sto- the scoreline not reflecting the storyline at all, really. So I'll try and whiz through it for those who missed it. Two Blades goals early on. McAtee and Illiman and Jai and Sheffield United, you'd have thought, may cruise to victory from that point. Nope. Bang, bang, bang. Three Blackpool goals between the 30th and 51st minute. All of a sudden, the Seasiders are in are ahead. Jerry Yates scoring four goals in two games ever since we've called him the championship's Mbappe. He's been very happy to fulfil that role. Then, at 3-2 up, inexplicably, two Blackpool red cards, Marvin Ekpeteta and Dom Thompson. That was followed by a Sheffield United... Just a siege, really. Uh, A missed penalty from Brewster. Uh, Cousin Chris Maxwell making some mad saves. There were uh, potential handballs not given, disallowed goals. And then finally, Oliver Norwood 
just ending things by thumping home a volley uh, after a ball dropped out of the sky after cousin Chris had punched a corner up in the air. Then somehow that wasn't quite it in the 99th minute. CJ Hamilton ran clear for Blackpool, had like a, a I'd say an eight yard head start running in off the left side. But Reda Kadra, probably the only Sheffield United player with the speed to catch up with CJ Hamilton, put his head down, motored back knocked Hamilton uh, kind of out of uh, out of his shooting motion and a right foot shot was blocked. Blackpool could have won that game 4-3 in the 99th minute with nine men. And if they had, I'd have probably just retired from podcasting. Uh, then it was full time. Then there was a massive fight. An incredibly fun game for the neutral. Uh, very confusing, I think, emotions-wise for both sets of fans. Uh, and, and certainly for me, the best thing about the championship this week. Therefore, my good cop. Bad cop starts at Bramall Lane as well. It was a really heated weekend of of football uh, in the championship. And I'm taking this role of bad cop very seriously. I'm the sheriff and I'm making some arrests for some bad behaviour. You know, the the four red cards that we saw, I will start with at Bramall Lane because there's a couple of other incidents elsewhere that I want to touch on as well of um, heated moments, let's say. But uh, yeah, but I mean, Equiteta's sending off was incredibly... Naive, I guess. So, you know, when you're at Bramall Lane, uh, you are 3-2 up. Uh, coming back from being 2-0 down for Ekpateta to, to go in and, and make, make the sliding tackle as he did when on a yellow card um, was was pretty foolish. And uh, and he can have no complaints, but it's the ones afterwards that are the real issue. I'm pretty sure when Dominic Thompson saw Ekpateta going in for that slide tackle and then the red card coming out, he'd have thought to himself, Marvin, what are you doing? Like, why have you done that? Like, just stay on your feet. So why is he two minutes later when the ball has just gone out for a for a corner decided to kick the ball um, at, uh, at Anel um, Ahmedzovic where there's just no need to do it whatsoever. You know, you can see that he it's petulance. They're ahead in the game. They've just gone down to 10 men and from point blank range when, you know, realistically he might complain and say he didn't mean to whatever, but you can't kick the ball away anyway. So... Thompson's red card or his second yellow for kicking the ball from point blank range at an opposition player was, was even more foolish. And then we've got the two red cards after the final whistle, after Ollie Norwood had um, had scored the, the the very, very late equaliser in the 98th minute or 97th minute, where Wes Frodingham and, and Shane Lavery were both sent off for a scuffle uh, after the full-time whistle. And it was one of the most pathetic things I've ever seen in my whole life. It was two people who wanted to look like they were fighting without actually fighting, who basically held each other's, held you know, the, the the front of each other's shirt and just decided to, and just decided to, to, to collapse on the floor. And rather than, you know, letting go of the opposition shirt, they just lay there facing each other almost quite romantically uh, with, 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 with shirt in fist uh, until they were both setting off pathetic behavior um, in what was an amazing game. Obviously we absolutely love to see it, um, but either way playing the role of, of bad chef, I've got to say, and then two other probably, um, yeah, more cynical moments that I have to call out when calling out bad behaviour in the championship. One was in, in Burnley Swansea, where Joel Piru was was sent off um, from for what I could tell was uh, seemingly two stamps, a, a bit of a kick out first, and then a stamp. The bizarre thing was the second stamp seemed to be when he was talking to the referee at the time, who was standing right in front of him, and he still thought whilst whilst protesting his innocence, he would uh, just drop in another stamp for good measure. Then the worst of the lot, which was the only one that wasn't actually seen. Well, I think it was seen, but it wasn't punished properly. Um, was Munith of, of Borough, 
um, with a really cynical, nasty stamp on on Kaminsky uh, as well, where he was only given a yellow card. Just cut it out, lads. Can everyone just play nicely? Also, just wanted to mention Jerry Yates, um, two back-to-back braces. He's a player that often, when he's in good form, um, he does very well. So yeah, two braces in a week. For him, it's all apples and pears. That's lovely. Killian. Killian Yates. Uh, I wanted to shout out Sheffield United's uh, YouTube highlights because they are comfortably the best offering on any club YouTube channel. They are complete chaos in the way that they do them. There's no other club that does it like this. They use the they, they don't use the extended 10-minute highlights that, that clubs are provided by the sort of central EFL um, like production arm. They mash in their own highlights. And when I say mash them in, they just whiz clips into one another they don't bother with much like production in terms of transitions or anything like that they just smash pack highlights in sometimes it, it might be a, a cross from norwood that just gets headed away they'll just pop that in just three seconds worth there and nothing comes from it but you get an amazing like quite dramatic flow when you watch the, the sheffield united youtube highlights packages and for this game it was just better than ever so i, I want to lay down the gauntlet to other efl clubs 71 of you I want you all to do your YouTube highlights like this. It will make the product better. It will make people enjoy watching the highlights more than they do uh, ordinarily. If you work for a club media team and you're not doing this, ask yourself why. And don't be don't be too proud just because someone else has done it first and just because I'm asking you to do it. I think there'll be some of you going like, well, that's going to make me less likely to do it because I want to be my own person. But don't be. Just accept good content. Do it like Sheffield United's YouTube channel. Check it out. It's exciting. Breathless stuff. It's great to watch for the fan or and do the it neutral. Like they do, do it like they do on the Discovery channel. One or the other. Just do mm. one or the other. Don't, <laughs> don't do it like you do currently. Let's go to the top of the championship for our next chat. That's Burnley against Swansea. Burnley 4, Swansea 0. In fact, George, something of a, uh, an eye-catching result. And, and the result of it put Burnley top of the tree for the first time. Since, yeah, I mean, sorry, for the first time since opening night when they were the only team to have played and won. <laughs> Does that, is, is there a league table after only two game, games are played? I feel like when 22 teams are on zero points, uh, it maybe doesn't count. Um, yeah, a, I mean, I personally don't think that there was a very big difference between Burnley's performance here and Burnley's performances every week. They just put their chances away and didn't concede. Um Burnley have been so solid consistently throughout the season um, and they just dominated this game and in a way that made that it was unbelievably comfortable for them. Um, and often, as we sometimes see, teams kind of take their foot off the gas. Um, Swansea didn't have a shot after they went after Burnley went 4-0 up uh, and that is the impressive thing, how, how well they managed the game. Um, we're seeing, certainly, I mean, we know it took them a while to get there, to get the players in the door that they wanted to get in. And we're starting to see some of those players really improving. You know, I think probably Nathan Teller is the only attacking player who really made had made an impact before um, of the new of the new players uh, in an attacking sense before uh, this weekend, not including Matson, obviously, but he's playing a left wing back, although he does do that. Um, but Zururi was very impressive on the left-hand side. He looks like a very, very tricky player, someone who's going to fill that void that Maxwell Corne um, has left over the last couple of seasons. Um, it, Jay Rodriguez is, is showing himself to be, even though they didn't get the striker that they they, they wanted in the summer, um, he is clearly capable of scoring the goals needed um, and to lead the line. And, and they look a completely different proposition with him leading the line rather than Ashley Barnes. Um, Vitinho from, from right wing back with the first goal as well. They dominated 
the ball, uh, which against Swansea isn't, um, you know, not many teams play against Russell Martin, Swansea side and complete more passes than them, especially not when they play most of the game, um, you know, going ahead after 50 minutes. But they did that. They dominated the chances as well. It was just a very well-oiled, very, very good performance from a team that we've said, you know, we had them first in our championship pre-season predictions. You know, it's way too early to start patting ourselves on the back about that. But we've said consistently all season that, you know, they, they look the team who would likely improve. Um, and I think in terms of the, the performances we've seen this season, it felt like days like Saturday were on the horizon because mm. um, they, they they dominate enough games to, to beat teams far easier than they've made it uh, at other times. Yeah, I mean, Cullen was incredible in that first game against Huddersfield. And we spoke about him at length on the first Monday pod of this season. And his performances haven't really dipped at all. They've become so automatic that it feels weird to mention him every single week. But here's another good time to do so. He's so good at setting the tempo, uh, helping them move the ball around, whether that's just recycling and being patient before then trying to provide some thrust or actually when the, when needs be moving the ball much quicker and picking out good forward passes. Uh, he's constantly offering for it, being brave on the ball. And I really think he sets the tone. That's not to say that his midfield partner, Jack Cork, hasn't been very, very tidy indeed and important to this. That's certainly not to say that Josh Brownhill playing in an advanced midfield position hasn't been magnificent as well. But, but Cullen is just such a, a wonderful player to watch. Not many like him. I don't think in the league at the moment. And then Nathan Teller, uh, you touched on him, just been a, a huge constant threat. Um, incredible pace for sure. Uh, very, very good skill as you'd expect. But one of the things I wasn't necessarily expecting to see from him is the this really nice instinct in terms of running in behind and getting on to through balls really from wide areas. It's the sort of runs that we talk about Brit and Diaz making quite well. And, and you wouldn't necessarily think naturally that they were a similar type of player because we think of Diaz as a, as a pure goal getter really and Teller as a, just a talented tricky wide man. But from what I've seen, his role in this team is to exploit the space in behind when Rodriguez kind of drops in and, and, and sucks defenders with him. And he's doing it so well um, as well as more sort of classic winger type stuff. So he's been impressing on loan from Saints. Manchester City will be delighted with the performances and the key roles of Murich in goal, who's been one of the league's best goalkeepers, Harwood Bellis in, in defence as well, uh, and, and and Vitinho now playing right back with Connor Roberts injured. Uh, he seems to have settled in quite nicely as well, and, and it was fullback to fullback for that first goal, Matson to Vitinho. So a good time to be talking Burnley because it was a, a fantastic performance, and we've kind of been waiting to talk about them positively for, for a month or two but we haven't always been able to because of the amount of draws that they've had, the amount of leads that they've given away. That that seems to be behind them. And maybe it's the excitement of this win, George, and maybe just because of, of kind of recency bias and them hitting the top, I just really feel like they could still move through the gears and become the absolute dominant team in, in the division from here, even though at the moment, as we know, it is all incredibly tight. Uh, two of their contenders, in theory, Two of the teams that came down from the Premier League with them, Watford and Norwich, played on, on Saturday night. Watford 2, Norwich 1. To me, George, it, it seemed like Ismail Assar was the star here, as he is and has been so many times. Ismail star For Watford, uh, he won a penalty in the first half um, with a good little run in behind. He was found, a little clipped ball from Kamara found him, and he was, he was brought down, maybe a little soft in the eyes of some, but he won the penalty. Dangerous play. Uh, then... Uh, a beautiful cross onto the foot of Loser, who volleyed at Watford in front, and then the trickery and uh, a fizzing low cross that that caused carnage in the Norwich box and ended up at the feet of Keane and Davis to put them two up. Most notably, 
is not that Saar played well and is a good footballer at championship level. It's that he did so playing off the left wing because Saar is one of the few consistently uninverted wingers, basically, that I can think of in modern football. Unless I'm missing something, he has almost always played off the right for Watford. I believe he plays off the left for Senegal. Um, And suddenly you look at Kamara, who is excitable, shall we say, when it comes to getting forward and is looking very, very, very good recently. When you think of a Kamara Saar left side uh, in attack at the very least, it's it's pretty exciting. It, it looks pretty potent. So I'm hoping to see more of that. Uh, last thing on Watford is uh, a, a quirk from Adam Drury on Not the Top 20 squad flagged up that live on Sky this season, Watford have played six and they've picked up 16 points, five wins and a draw. Uh, when they've not been live on Sky, eight games, no wins, four points. Uh, and the games on Sky have been against Sheffield United, West Brom, Burnley, Borough, Stoke and Norwich. So uh, it's a bit of a confusing one at the moment. Excellent live on Sky against supposed top teams and really, really underperforming in those other games. Uh, as for Norwich, I still have that weird feeling, George, of them being pretty good, but not that good and maybe not as good as they should be, which is just quite a weird headspace to be in, I think, certainly for myself and, and I know a lot of Norwich fans as well. Yeah, it is a bit weird. I mean, the, the thing I would say from a positive standpoint is that, yes, Norwich haven't been great so far this season, but they've still managed to beat loads of teams they still went on a was it a seven match winning run or or seven wins from eight uh, early early in the campaign which is why they are in their lofty position as they are now Um, which shows that even a a five out of ten six out of ten level of performance for this group of players is good enough to probably make them a a top six team at the very worst Um, I think the likelihood is is that they will improve Um, I think that uh, the you know the game on on Saturday night was a bit of a funny one because even though um, I, I wouldn't for a second suggest that Norwich deserve to lose it, I, I do think they definitely should have had a penalty in the first half when um, when Sargent was pushed in the back, and then it's a you know it's it's naturally a very very different game if they do get that. Um, but they've had decisions go their way earlier in the season. Um, the, I guess the biggest concern for me is you want something, a bit of kind of momentum or upward you know, something to happen at a club in, in a good promotion season. It's quite rare when you see basically a flat season end in, 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 uh, in success. And you definitely feel that at Burnley, uh, where I don't think the fans can really believe their eyes about the kind of football they're seeing at Turf Moor whilst also winning. Uh, we can definitely, even though they've gone through a wobble themselves, we definitely are seeing that at Sheffield United, who are back up really mobile under, under Paul Eckenbottom. At Norwich, there is definitely a, a kind of strange disconnect between, um, you know, the, the results and the and the feeling between the fans. And I guess they would say that they're not surprised that, that they are going through their own disappointing period of form now with just one point from three games against, you know, Watford is the one where, sure, Norwich fans will say fair play. Um, you know, we've gone away to, to Watford and we've been beaten, but but the Reading and to get one point from Reading and Preston um, is disappointing. So yeah, it, it, it feels like the only way is up, but there's, there's very little evidence what we're seeing so far that there's there's an improvement in performances Middlesbrough one Blackburn Rovers two win 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 loss 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 win loss win loss win loss win loss win 2-1 Roasters Roasters Rovers Roasters Blackburn Roasters (laughs) (laughs) wow it's actually kind of nominative determinism that in a weird way why is that you roasted something till it's burnt black. Okay. Is that what happened at the Riverside? Yes. <laughs> uh, Borough burnt black by 
Blackburner Roasters. Um, nice. <laughs> oh, it's silly. I mean, for it's, it's Blackburn again doing what, what Blackburn seemingly do every week, where um, they've taken a. I mean, it's it's a very difficult. I mean, no matter what's happened to, to Birmingham this season, even though they're, they're languishing down in twenty second, I'm still very much saying that um, Middlesbrough is a, is a tough place to go, um, regardless because of the, the level of the quality of their of their players and because of the, the numbers they posted this season, even in defeat. Um, but Blackburn um, went there and got and got a two one win in what was a, a, f- a fairly marginal game, I guess. You mm-hmm. know, Blackburn basically took their chances early on. Um, the Sam Gallagher goal, if you haven't, haven't seen it, is one of the best goals uh, of the season so far. Um, it, it's, it's a classic one where the touch, and we've had this debate before with different goals, the touch is either an unbelievable touch or it's a miscontrol that's worked out incredibly well by giving him space to then swivel and shoot. But the finish itself from 25 yards into the top right-hand corner is sumptuous. And that seems to have been the case for Blackburn quite often this season where the wins have come in games where one of their players has done something exceptional and then Kaminsky's had uh, a good enough game to, um, to 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 protect the lead and that was the case here because Borough were by far the better side in the second half um, I don't think Blackburn had a shot in the second half but they weathered the storm Kaminsky made a couple of great saves mm. as I said early on in the in the show Manise probably should have been sent off which would have changed the game anyway and for Rovers it's just a case for them where they it does feel like they're, they're somewhat running hot you know they are living on the edge a little bit here where they um the, the lack of draws just goes to show that i think in in most seasons they'd have drawn quite a lot of those wins um but whilst they're not um you know they are they're, they're getting enough points on the board to set themselves up for a um a tilt at the top six in 15 league games the team that has scored first has won every game in blackburn rovers's matches so far which is uh, a, a statement of fact another statement is that Blackburn's non-penalty XG goal difference is the second worst in the division at this point. Mm. Um, And the third statement of fact is Blackburn Rovers have won more league matches than any other team in the championship this season. A very confusing team that I can't speak about much longer because they confuse my brain. Luton 3, QPR 1. I'd like to talk about this one. Uh, I certainly had billed it as two of the seeded batches, more competent teams. But there's no doubting who the better side was uh, and, and the deserved winners. That was the home side, Luton there. Subs in particular making a big difference at a time where having been comfortably the better side in the first half and grabbed the lead, I think their grip on the game was just just loosening a little bit, slipping away from them and, and into QPR's favour, which is which is what tends to happen in these sorts of games. Uh, the subs came in a really good time. Uh, Jerome off the bench, Cornick off the bench, Luke Freeman off the bench, all three of them having a big impact. Uh, firstly, out of possession, I would say, um, with their fresh legs, keeping the pressure on, uh, but also, of course, uh, in the at the sharp end of the pitch, uh, all of them having a hand in, in the second and third goals as well. Um, they came on for... Uh, Carlton Morris, uh, Adebayo, who combined for the first goal. Adebayo's improved form is a, a, a well, it's terrifying for the rest of the league, really, if you've got Morris and Adebayo on form. Uh, as an aside, I actually saw Carlton Morris and Harry Cornick at the Belfry playing golf on Wednesday. So I hope they had a nice round. Um, and yeah, Luton, while they are the team in the championship, George, that's been ahead for the most amount of time this season, for the highest percentage mm. of their matches, more than any other team, Luton have been leading and before this one they'd gone ahead 10 times in games and conceded six equalizers so there's a few different ways of of spinning the narrative it was hugely frustrating for 
their fans that they kept taking the lead and throwing it away. And there's all sorts of stuff that, that comes from that about maybe the subs aren't right. Maybe the mentality's not right. Maybe they're getting too tired with the style of play, all that sort of stuff. I think probably the answer is the fact of them being consistently good at scoring the first goal is more significant long-term than the amount of the equalizers they'd conceded. I, I would say, and it makes me think of them as a, I was about to say dark horse, but they've been the dark horse for about three well, years now. I was going to say this, and it was something that struck me um, yesterday when I was kind of looking through the championship stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't want to repeat myself about what I said about QPR because it feels to I me mean, QPR feel more dark horsey. I'm not sure you can, you know, regardless of, of Luton, the, you know, the, the size of the, the club or preseason expectations or, or whatever else. I think when you are a beaten playoff semi-finalist the year before, um, there have to be, you know, it's, it's hard to then go and say you're, you're dark horses for, for promotion. But is there an argument, given how poor um, the championship, you know, what we're saying about the quality of the, the championship this season, when you think back to the fact that Luton didn't win any of their first four games, they picked up two points, uh, a nil-nil draw at home to Birmingham, and then they drew one all at Burnley. Since then, so since they went to Swansea and beat them 2-0, on the 20th of August and they've lost one game since then and they're posting very good numbers you know they've mm -hmm. got I think the, the fourth best expected goals ratio in the whole division including those first four games better than than Burnley's and Luton may be just like the best team in the league since then like is it that is it is it just kind of that simple like that the results are there the precedence is there from last season the uh data agrees with it like is it just because they are Luton and because they have one of the smallest budgets and because they have a small stadium and we don't expect it mm. if if they were called Norwich and the performances are exactly the same and we are seeing the same trend would we not all be sitting here being like well the inevitable is happening the, the team that everyone thought was going to be the best is now becoming the best mm. I think there might be some complacency about just how good Luton are and how sustainable this form might be yeah. I agree and and uh, I yeah I, I was probably it was probably this morning when when this started to to crystallize in my mind. So I'm glad to mm -hmm. hear you speak like that. I, I spoke uh, last week or two weeks ago about their midfield three, Clark, Campbell, Lansbury being, in my eyes, as good a unit as there is in the championship. And uh, now, can you rely particularly on Lansbury to to play a, as big a proportion as matches as you'd like to keep that partnership alive and 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 kicking? I hope so, but maybe not. Uh, Morris Nadabio up front up front need no explanation inter introduction. They are excellent and they look like they're getting better as a duo. So I, I was always, well, in the last month, I've been thinking that there's defensive issues, um, particularly in terms of, of individual errors amongst the defensive personnel. Then when you see they've got the second best XG against in the league, you know, the way my mind works is, well, okay, our individual error is going to last forever. Probably not. What What is more likely to last is that, process is that structure and how good they've been out of possession and and to the extent to which they keep teams away from their goal for the most part so very positive on the hatters this week how about uh well, we're going to be welcome to the kenny next week aren't we it's exciting yes please Better plan a trip <laughs> reading nil west brom to george richard beale caretaker manager starts with a win means there's now a mick beale and a dick beale managing in the championship god i love that that was amazing um it was, I mean, it was the most, just the archetypal new manager bounce game <laughs> where where it was probably one of Baggies, well, it was, certainly wasn't one of their best performances of the season, but they did the one thing they hadn't been able to do um, for, for the rest of the campaign where they scored goals. They, they put their, they put some half chances away. 
Um, you know, Matt Phillips off the right hand side with the opener, uh, Carter Hickman with a with a long range strike for the second, and they win the game two 0 Um, they didn't keep Reading particularly at bay. Reading had their chances and didn't put them away. It was just a, a massive, massive whole load of variants just poured all over the pitch in the game after Steve Bruce left the club, and that and that was it. And they won the game really comfortably. Should there be more being made of Matt Phillips's like step over in order to throw the defender off balance, and then he just passed it into the net? To, when yeah, I saw maybe. that, I like properly yelped. I was going mad mm. for it, and I haven't seen anyone make anything else of it. But he's he's running at the defender and he just throws in a huge step over with his left foot that just opens up a little gap for him to pass it into the net. And it strikes me that that is an, a genuinely quite a jaw-dropping piece of invention and execution. Uh, but but maybe that's just me. Gardner Hickman certainly with a sit-up-and-take-notice performance. Um, if there's a Nick Beal out there, if there's a Nick Beal, you are currently favourite for the Middlesbrough job. So good luck to you. That would be good. I thought, it was, I thought it was Alec Beal. Alec Beal. Mm. Ali McBeal. Oh, wow. What a lady. Hull nil, Birmingham 2. I'm going to take an approach to this one where I'm not going to talk much about the football because I don't want to overdo match analysis, particularly really positive Birmingham match-specific analysis because I think Hull right now in this guise, in this moment, are the worst team in the league. Last mm. week, I started my Huddersfield to Hull nil analysis by saying I don't think Huddersfield did anything special to beat Hull. Uh, I didn't want to go overboard and I'm quite pleased because I, I then think Huddersfield came up against a, a somewhat better team and lost on the weekend. So bigger tests to come for Birmingham. There are some things to mention uh, overall about the developing balance of this team and the improving patterns of play. I'm just not going to do it this week because I, I do really think Hull are barely an opposition right now. And apart from two penalties, one of them missed, and a worldie. Birmingham didn't create a ton of chances here. But what I would love to talk about is that I honestly never thought I would see a Birmingham City team look and feel like this without experiencing either a change of ownership or a relegation to League One, which might have allowed them to to reset uh, and do a kind of Sheffield Wednesday-esque thing where they start winning games again and getting good feeling back. The scenes post-match were magnificent you can find videos on social the players going over to the fans there's a bond that's been created and John Eustace in his first role as an EFL manager obviously had that mad kiddie team he is playing an absolute blinder on and off the pitch at the moment and it's exciting I think there's still a long way to go on the pitch I'm not going to start setting objectives for them I'm not going to say I think they're they're all of a sudden a, a playoff contender or anything like that I don't think that's necessary I don't think that would be right to do but I'm I'm excited it's great to speak positively about Birmingham City I like a lot of the players uh, I like the manager I like what I'm seeing so um, while the current owners are in I will always always cynically assume that that they may ruin things, undermine things, upset things in some way, uh, like Chanziri at Sheffield Wednesday, who for 18 months has kept pretty quiet and things are going quite well. But I don't trust them uh, and and that is always going to be a concern for me. But as we've seen at Wednesday for a period of months, sometimes a year or two, as they're showing, good managers can can still get things going despite shambolic ownership and, uh, and they can still achieve a level of competency and, and and results, and they should always be applauded for that. George Preston nil, Stoke 2. Stoke looking good, question mark. Preston looking bad, question mark. Which one is it? 
I think it's Stoke looking good, I would say. Um, mainly because this isn't this wasn't an isolated occurrence. Um <clears throat> after Alex Singer came in, um, there was some very poor performances. Uh you watched you witnessed one of them mm-hmm. uh, live in the flesh at Reading. Um, and it felt like things were, you know, had taken a step back before they'd taken a step forward. Um, but in the last couple of weeks, Stoke had been a, a completely different team. Um, there wasn't any, you know, slow progression uh, as Alex Neal got his ideas across. It was basically Jekyll and Hyde. It was one day they were very poor and then suddenly they went to um, they went to Burnley and got that probably undeserved equaliser through uh, Harry Clark. Uh, and then suddenly we've seen two really good performances back to back, beating Sheffield United at home three-one, massively deserving that win uh, as well. We, we spoke uh, in in glowing terms about Phil Jagielka's role in that win, and then here again against against Preston, they were by far the better team. Two nice finishes from Smallburn and Campbell. Great to see Tyrese. Mm. Um, it was funny Tyrese's goal because when he first picked up the ball in that right-hand channel, it looked like he was gonna do the finish that he did about seven seconds later he kind of like jiggled his legs a little bit and then he just thought actually you know what I'm going to do the obvious thing I'm just going to bend it around you and, and into the far corner which he did very well um, Preston didn't really get too close to them Stoke just by far the better team and um, you know it's a it's a it's a three run uh, it's a three game run of, of seven points but um, yeah I mean this is the best we've seen Stoke play for a long time under any manager and uh, you know this is why Often managers don't get long in the season because even after a really poor start, just a very short run like this can can go from fans thinking either this is a season to ward off relegation or the season's gone to suddenly, hold on, we're actually, it's it's not even mid-October yet and we're we're in touching distance of, of the playoffs and the automatic promotion spot. So um, time to... Um, time to uh, maybe get that season ticket out of the bin and, and, and tape it back together. He's a good manager. He's a good manager. He um, is. Rotherham beat Huddersfield 2-1 Saturday lunchtime. Lovely Connor Washington finish to uh, to, to kick off the uh, EFL weekend. Didn't kick off the EFL weekend, uh, actually. There was a League 2 game on Friday night, so I'd like to uh, retract that. To kick off the championship weekend, Connor Washington just posted one into the top corner. A lovely uh, way to rouse us all. Uh, and then uh, Huddersfield set piece. Drink. To equalise, uh, really nicely worked. Good finish from Danny Ward. And then, if anything, I thought the game was was pretty poor. Uh, there was a maybe a five minute Huddersfield spell towards the start of the second half where they put on a bit of pressure, um, disallowed goal correctly. So um, uh, a good bit of play from Sorba Thomas down the right side. Danny Ward just not quite connecting, uh, having made a good run across the front post. And then it was Rotherham that went ahead, and it was a diagonal ball delivered into the box. It was Richard Wood holding off two, three, four defenders, it felt like, and nodding it down for Georgie Kelly to smash home. Uh, Georgie Kelly is where we're going to go now because he is becoming or has become a cult hero among Rotherham fans. And I wanted to make sure that everyone starts to know Georgie Kelly (laughs) and gets to know Georgie Kelly and his story and his personality and his smile because I'm loving it. He's not even started a league game yet for uh, Rotherham. Now, Niall, who's a Rotherham fan on the NTT20 squad, wrote an unbelievable message explaining that the cult status, you know, the circumstances of his signing from Bohemians, a a part-time team in Ireland, uh, his background up to that point where he'd been at Dundalk, but 
didn't really break through there was always the, the understudy to Pat Huben, George, who you'll know from his yellows days. Um, <laughs> his lack of minutes uh, from signing in January at Rotherham because, you know, he signed a, a joined a, a high performing team. They had Smith and Ladapo and Coyote and he wasn't really involved. And then that just incredible fairy tale impact in scoring the goal at Gillingham to make it 2-0 that confirmed their promotion in front of the away end. Those were his first minutes in the Rotherham shirt. But in the championship, it's been more of the same. Held back because for various reasons, which are not always easily understandable, I think, from the outside, it's not thought that Georgie Kelly is ready to start games consistently in the championship. And you'd have thought that some players would be quite frustrated, angry maybe, and a bit sort of chippy in a post-match interview where they've come off the bench and scored the winning goal. Not Georgie Kelly. He's the most modest footballer I think you'll ever come across. And it is so infectious. And I'm really pleased to say uh, that I've had permission from BBC Sheffield Sport to share a snippet of this brilliant interview with Georgie Kelly from the weekend. A huge grin on his face throughout. Here's Georgie Kelly. Do you enjoy the role of, of being a bit of a hero for these fans? <laughs> How can you not? I think... Um... And I wouldn't say I'm a bit of a hero yet. God, I've scored a couple of goals. I've scored three goals for the club. Like, it's mad when you think about it. I don't see myself as no great player. Like, and, and I feel like awful lucky to be at this club and to be able to chip in with goals at, the, at this standard um, and this level. Listen, I have loads of, of uh, growing and improving bits through both, you know, mentally and physically on the pitch and stuff. Uh, I have a long way to go yet, I think, before I can before I reach kind of where the peaks I'm come from. Like this time last year, I was playing plays, I was playing part-time, like, you know, training two nights, a couple of nights a week. So there's, it's a, it's a big change, like, and uh, yeah, well, I'll get there hopefully eventually. Yep. So that's a lovely man in a Rotherham shirt on what BBC, on BBC Sheffield Sport. I want to be friends with him. I'm going to make some steps to make that happen. He's also got a master's, George, in renewable energy and environmental finance. So probably add quite a lot to the pod if we could get him on. On that mm. front, uh, I always think you've got quite good renewable energy, where every morning you're perky and then you slowly decline and then you go to sleep and then you, you're renewed. So you guys would get on. Yeah, and I've never run out, not yet. <laughs> hopefully, um, hopefully Georgie Kelly can get to a point physically, psychologically, all those different aspects where he can be starting games because he, he looks like he's got a goal scorer's instinct at the very least. And and Rotherham could certainly do that uh, in their squad. So good win for Rotherham uh, and good for cult hero Georgie Kelly to score uh, on the telly and, and just gain a few more fans. Uh, George Sunderland 2, Wigan 1. This one had a few narratives to it. Came up together from League One last season. Um, Wigan have in their ranks Charlie Wyke, Broadhead, Max Power, James McLean, all of them have played for Sunderland before. Sunderland, 1-0 down, 1-2-1. Yeah, it, as you say, it feels like a game just full of Sunderland players, this one. But yeah, Charlie White with a goal that I reckon he enjoyed. Of course, it was Sunderland who had the last laugh um, by scoring two goals. And Tony Mowbray is, I mean, personally, having always felt that Mowbray was... was um, you know, dealt quite a, a tough hand. Well, not a tough hand, but you know, wasn't necessarily given a, a fair um, appreciated. Yeah, appreciated by Blackburn fans. It's really lovely to see uh, Sunderland fans fully getting behind Mowbray and what he's doing at the club because you know it, it has been very difficult coming into a, a club and having two, having basically a squad of of two strikers, two strikers who are both very good strikers and Ross Stewart and Ella Sims, and given their the way that they play and the nature and the fact they play together. 
Um, having having neither of those available has made it quite difficult for, for Mowbray. But the good thing is when they play badly at the moment, they normally draw nil-nil and when they play well, they win games. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it was a, a good performance, a good comeback. Um, Sirk in the, the left-back getting his first senior goal, pretty surprised to see over the weekend. You know, I don't think there are many blind spots that you and I have uh, and I'm not lumping you in with this either but um, suddenly seeing reports of, of Sirkin being linked to, to Brentford and back mm. to Spurs where he just left took me a little bit by surprise I hadn't quite appreciated um, and I did a bit of a numbers deep dive on him this morning and there wasn't a great deal to get excited about but um, but yeah I mean a, a, he got the winning goal which is a good, big moment for him big week for him I'm guessing and he's certainly part of a, a Sunderland side who are pretty impressive in terms of what they're doing and um, you know it's easy to forget that last season Wigan were you know, finished a, a fair way ahead of Sunderland, but um, but this season both have made really really impressive starts to life back in in League One, and I'm I'm guessing Wigan fans just hoping that a bit a few whispers that Liam Richardson might be have been considered by by West Brom for that vacant managerial role, as you know they seem to given the names who are being linked to West Brom, you know Stephen Schumacher, the one this morning, it seems like they're very much looking at who has overperformed in the EFL in the last 18 months or so. So it's no surprise that Richardson seems to have, have cropped up. Mm. I mean, left-footed defensive player who's played left side of a back three, left back, left wing back, only 20 years old. It, even those very facts are always going to flag up someone to, to the big clubs, aren't they? I mean, there aren't many players of his age who aren't already owned by Premier League clubs and, and on loan in the Championship that are, are getting those sorts of minutes and getting that yeah. sort of backing. And what's also weird is that if you look at, you know, we often joke that Dougie Friedman listens to the pod because you look at who Crystal Palace buy and it's always players that we love. <laughs> whoever, um, whoever, whoever at Tottenham does the EFL recruitment certainly doesn't listen to the pod because um, we were pretty uh, vocal about Ryan Sessegnon and our opinion that he, his uh, achievements, despite being very young, but on a purely performance level was probably a bit overblown. Joe Roden was a player that we liked, but we said at the time we weren't necessarily sure he was a Premier League quality. And then Circum uh, would be the latest one. We were like, ah, okay, not someone I necessarily thought um, would get a move to a big six Premier League club. But um, I mean, given they've just let him go, you know, they know plenty about more about him than we do. So we'll see. Uh, Patrick Roberts was absolutely on one here as well. Seven dribbles completed. I think 12 attempted. It was a, a dribbly performance from Patrick Roberts, including one nutmeg of James McLean that, that had me making involuntary noises shall we say um <laughs> other wins away wins for Millwall their first of the season actually at Bristol City 2-1 and you know this game was basically boiled down to Millwall creating shot after shot opportunity from set piece situations uh they had 16 shots I think 12 or 13 were from set piece situations one or two of the ones from open play were um Murray Wallace pot shots from 30 yards if you can do that particularly against Bristol City you do that and it works if you can boil the game down to set piece scenarios if you can when you haven't got the ball deny them space to attack into you know deny Conway and Semenyo and Vyman whoever's playing uh, space to run into and space to break into then you've got a great chance of beating them and, and that's what teams are finding at the moment the winning goal and absolute shambles from a Bristol City point of view you know you can kind of see how it happens they've conceded three set piece goals against Birmingham the week before and everyone's banging on about how weak and vulnerable they are on that front. So they spend all week talking about it, being more determined, more focused than ever to show that they aren't, that they can defend set pieces against a strong team like Millwall. And then a ball gets floated into the box and three defenders go for it 
and the goalkeeper comes flying out to claim it as well. There's no Millwall player challenging for the ball, but there are four Bristol City players. Of course, they all bang into each other and the goalie drops the ball and Fleming taps it in for his fifth goal in five games and, and a win for, for Millwall. Shambles, I'm afraid, from a Bristol City perspective. As for Millwall, good to get the away win. Um, nothing incredible, I don't think, about the performance. Nothing particularly out of the ordinary about the way that they went about it. But, um, you know, good to get that monkey off their back. And I note that they've got a bit of a weird record where they've lost every game to the current top six. Uh, they've played six and lost six. And outside outside of that, they've won six, drawn two and not lost to anyone. So um <laughs> bit of a random one Uh, also with their first away win of the season to finish us off in the championship George Coventry City their eighth away game of the season in this very uh wonky start to the campaign Uh, they went to Cardiff and won one nil yeah I mentioned at the top of the show that I've you know I'm not convinced that Coventry are the uh worst team in the league despite their own 24th position you've touched there on on why you know the, the away um skew because they couldn't start to play their home games has played a big part in that but I think it's also fair to say that, that, that they were very bad at the start of the season. Um, you know, the commentary at the start of the season weren't the same as the, as the one that we saw um, do I mean, so well last they're season. Still, they're still under one PPG, <clears throat> 10 points from 11. Yeah, yes. Um, and, and part of that is because, you know, of their three home games, they've lost two of them, uh, albeit one was against um, Burnley. Mm. Uh, but yeah, this was their first win on the road. So when your first win on, away from home comes after eight games and eight of your uh, 11 games have been away from home, it's going to be pretty diff- pretty, pretty difficult. Uh, but they were much better. Um, you know, they, the the Giot goal was, was, was a deserved winner, I would say. Um, having said that, Cardiff did score... Uh, an equaliser, which looked to me like it, it probably should have counted. It didn't, didn't look like it was offside uh, necessarily, and that is going to be frustrating for Mark Hudson. Um, but, you know, Hudson's made a great start to um, his caretaker manager ship, um, caretaker ship, whatever you want to call it. I don't know why I keep trying to say the word ship. Um, <laughs> so, something to do with the Hudson, maybe. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it was um, commentary with, with, with good good value for their win. And this was uh, the kind of performance level that we, we saw from them last season. And um, if they continue with that, they'll, they'll get off, off bottom fairly quickly. Uh, and yeah, for Cardiff, it was uh, a bit of a dip after what we'd seen from two, two very good performances under Hudson. In League One, we had a brilliant slate, I would say. Seven away wins from the 11 games that were played over the weekend. Wickham, the only home side to pick up all three points. Um, good cop. Oxford United, the yellows, wow. the home counties yellows. At four, How much will I pay you? <laughs> four two winners at Exeter. You were really, really gleeful and joyous. You had the happiness of a man who I think had had a couple of drinks and also had been quite sad about his football team for upwards of two months. And it was really genuinely quite nice to see so there you go from a personal level Oxford are the good cop for making my friend happy but also on the pitch they had something to prove and dare I say it they had a manager to play for this didn't look like a team that's downed tools a team that's just waiting for a managerial change kind of using it as an excuse to to underperform which is what you do see quite often across the leagues Uh, I don't get the feeling that almost any of Oxford's or underperforming start to the season has screamed players don't like the manager anymore. So this felt uh, kind of notable. You know, they were 4-0 up after 55 minutes. Um, Exeter had only mustered three shots total at that point. It was a very, yeah, it was dominant. Um, Oxford playing with a lot of energy, uh, a lot of intent, a lot of long shots, 
which seems to be a bit of a feature of Oxford's play this season. Cameron Brannigan, League One's premier pot shotter. Um, and maybe they were benefiting from Exeter having played away uh, at Charlton in midweek. And maybe that was the plan all along to, to, you know, maybe more so the normal away games, really take the game to the opposition and, and see how uh, see how fatigued they are. And after two months of, of rub of the green absence, shall we say, uh, for Oxford, things sometimes just fall your way. So sometimes your free kick goes under the wall and straight into the corner, as happened for Brannigan's first goal. Really nice take. Sometimes... The opposition parries your long shots straight to your players following in, as happened for the second goal, as happened for the fourth goal. Sometimes your 20-yard strikes just perfectly find the bottom corner, as happened for Carl Joseph's third goal. So really good day for Oxford. The question is, will it be a a turning point? Is this the ketchup bottle being shaken loose, uh, mustard maybe, in Oxford's case? Will it come flying out? We will find out. They've got Peterborough at home next weekend, a game that at least one, if not both of us, will be at to see uh, Oxford in person. It capped off a a tough week for Exeter, uh, conceding four goals to Charlton in midweek, four goals to Oxford on Saturday. The one bright spot, you'd say, uh, Sonny Cox, youngster, came off the bench to score right at the end, 18-year-old striker who has had trials with at least three Premier League teams, including Manchester United, very much one to watch there. I was just going to echo what you said about the the players playing for Carl Robinson um, for some balance uh, with the because you know the general narrative is about how the fans have maybe turned. Um, Cameron Brannigan came out after the Wickham game and gave a, a pretty impassioned "Don't give up on us, don't give up on the manager" um, and made it very very clear. I mean, Brannigan is clearly a leader in that dressing room, um, and he made it very clear that, in his opinion, um, you know the the club had to stand by. Both the, the team and the manager. So um, yeah, I would I would echo that, and I think there's there's no suggestion at all that the players aren't playing for him. Um, and you know, a, the fixture list has been kind to Oxford. So um, a win against a team who've started the season very well in Exeter. You know, the, the proof is going to be in in a, a home game against Peterborough on Saturday, followed by a trip to um, Pompey on Tuesday night. I think after those two games, we'll have a, a good idea if Oxford really are back. As I tweeted from a wedding. Uh, at six o'clock in the afternoon on uh, <laughs> on Saturday, um, yeah, my bad cop is. I'm I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, you know, I feel like kicking a dog when it's down. Um, but Sean McConville, uh, I'm afraid, has to take the the bad cop um, mantle here. And and I'll you know for those who who haven't heard what happened uh, in in Accrington against Derby County, I would urge you to to go and find uh, well just to go and look at Accrington's. Twitter account where <laughs> a series of five tweets really uh, tells the story uh, better than than I'm about to. 35th minute penalty for the Reds. 36th minute McConville penalty is saved by Wildsmith. 37th minute penalty for the Reds. 38th minute McConville drags his penalty wide of the target. 39th minute goal for Derby. Osula there scores. you go. There you have it. That is my bad cop. Uh, Sean McConville missing two penalties in three minutes and then Osula going down the other end and scoring his second goal of the game. Osula though. Hello. Whoa. Yes, yeah. please. We, where, where has this um, striker who looks tailor-made for a Paul Warren team suddenly arrived out of nowhere from? Uh, he's on loan from Sheffield United. He has played tiny parts off, off the bench so far in the in the, in the season. Uh, barely got much for looking under, under a senior. 
hasn't done much off the bench so far to suggest that he's good enough. Suddenly thrown in the team uh, from the start against Accrington and put in an unbelievable performance. Um, a tall, physical striker, very good on the ball, holds it up well, two classy finishes. Yeah, I'm I'm in. Uh, he looks pretty exciting to me. Um, and- Absolutely gobbled up the ground for that second goal. He, he gave yeah. the, the defender had like a 15-yard head start as the ball went over the top. Yeah, no, impressive. Uh, and, you know, Derby themselves... They, they will realise that they um not fortunate, but, you know, to, for, for McConville to miss two penalties in, in a minute or two minutes um, <laughs> means this could have gone a different way. I think for Derby fans, as an away trip, it must have been one of the greatest away days of all time. <laughs> I can't think of many things better than watching uh, your team score a last minute winner, but that probably is up there with one of them. Not one, but two penalties missed then going up the other end and scoring. And then Tom Barkhausen making the game safe in the 97th minute in front of his fan, in front of the travelling fans as well. So, uh, yeah, all things told, a very, very good away win. And after um, a difficult weekend last weekend for Paul Warren, um, he will be delighted that things went his way on Saturday. Do you think James Collins was delighted? Because it was a difficult weekend for him when he got sent off against Port Vale, suspended for three games, and then saw this, I'm going to say it, Danish wonder kid <laughs> take his place and look like the League One Mbappe. Um, because you know, as soon as Mbappe got, again, as soon as got two more Zlatan games for me, he's got two more games here, mate, with Collins out. And I mean, I don't want to overreact, but if he does anything like that again, then I don't want to see James Collins starting games up front for Derby anytime soon. Um, away at Ipswich on Friday night, Derby Ipswich, yeah. that'll be worth a Huge. watch. Um, good start away from home under Warren, two games, five goals. None conceded. Uh, let's move through the gears. MK Dons one, Plymouth Argyle four. Only Arsenal have a better points per game than Plymouth Argyle in the top four, top five tiers uh, of English football. I don't know exactly what to say about Plymouth Argyle this week that I haven't or you haven't said quite a lot already in the last 10 weeks. So from an MK Dons point of view, the first goal is an absolute howler from a goalkeeper, Jamie Cumming, for whom this sort of Rick would have seemed unthinkable if you've watched him play for the last two years at Jills and at MK Dons. And when you're going through the ringer as a manager at Liam Manning, as a club, probably somewhat confused and somewhat fearful about the situation that you find yourselves in, your goalkeeper gifting the opposition a goal early on in the game against top of the league is just... Well, it, it's the sort of thing that you 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 think feels obvious, but also very painful. The second goal is all that's bad with MK Dons at the moment. One quite simple but decent pass from the Plymouth centre-back that took four MK Dons players out of the game who were kind of faux-pressing. Grig and the midfielders kind of standing near the ball but not putting any feasible pressure on it nor blocking any passing lanes. And then... All of a sudden, their turns, they're running back towards their own goal. Azaz is carrying it. And just watch them running back to their goal is tough to watch at the moment. I don't know if it's because they are just slow or because they're unmotivated or or both. Um, but it was desperate to watch. The centre-backs, I felt a bit sorry for, but they were a bit all over the place as well. Azaz just slipped it to Mumba, slipped it to Ennis, 2-0. Uh, and the last two goals would make me feel physically sick if I was an MK Dons fan. Um, and, you know, I could barely be more positive about Plymouth Argyle right now and I could barely be more negative about MK Dons right now. Ipswich nil, yes. Lincoln won. This was uh, certainly a, 
a football match, wasn't it? <laughs> this was a game. This was a game. Yeah, I mean, for for Lincoln, firstly, because it's easy to get bogged down. In, um, the, you know the stats. Uh, this was a you know a pretty interesting game from that respect. Um, but for for Lincoln, given you know we had them bottom of our of our one to twenty fours, they're sitting in thirteenth. But it's more just individual games they've had. You know they've gone to Ipswich, they've beaten them one nil. Yes, of course, it was basketball. But as I always say, if you're Lincoln City and you go to Ipswich and you win one nil. This is the way it's going to look. You know, you are you are not going to be capable of being the better side for ninety minutes against a team who are, you know, who's who's probably have one or two players who, if you combine their wages, amount to the the whole first team at Lincoln. Um, this is the way you're going to have to do it, and and they did it, and they did it, and they won one nil. But they've also, of course, uh, hosted Derby and beaten them two nil, and they've had a six three away win at, at Bristol Rovers, and they yet to be beaten at home all season. So um, there are a lot of things that Mark Kennedy is doing uh, in his infancy of his, his managerial reign at Lincoln that is, you know, very impressive and deserves to be applauded. Um, having said that, <laughs> uh, this was a pretty fortunate one. You know, the the goal itself was Lincoln's kind of one big chance of the game and Ipswich created loads. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that Ipswich created loads of good chances. Mm. Um, it reminded me a little bit of, of Oxford's performance at Wickham last weekend where they went behind and they had a load of shots and a load of um, territory and a load of possession and probably did deserve at least something out of the game. But it wasn't like um, they missed countless open goals or or very good chances. It was more just the accumulation of of attempts on goal and some desperation there as well. I don't think, you know, I don't think Ipswich lose anything in defeat. Uh, I didn't kind of just be like, ooh, maybe they are, um, maybe we've been overrating them. It was just one of those days where the ball didn't go in, and, and once they were behind, they found it very difficult to come back into it. I think my only like ooh thing was <laughs> that when House scored for Lincoln, hilarious goal by the way, where the ball just gets headed up in the air. I think it was up, accounted for between four and five seconds before getting flicked on again and, and House stabbing mm. in. Um, that was the twenty-fourth minute. Ipswich hadn't had a shot at that point. Twenty-four minutes at home to Lincoln, no shots yet. Uh, last week. They were 1-0 down early against Morecambe, had their first shot after 40 minutes. So it's just something I thought was notable. That is an abnormal amount of time for a team with Ipswich's level of territory, dominance, quality, talent, whatever you want to call it, to just not even have a shot. Um, So maybe the attack's just a little clogged up at the moment, needs loosening. Uh, Derby on Friday, the one to watch there. 16 of their 33 shots were blocked. I'm saying build a statue of Ioma, Poole, Jackson, O'Connor, and Ruffin, the back five for Lincoln. Just build them a, well, it's, it'd be more than a stat. It'd be like a sort of Mount Rushmore, but with five faces on it. Uh, because that that is absolutely unbelievable. Um, only five shots on target for Ipswich. So I, I definitely agree with you. I, I sort of expected to see this as, wow, isn't this ridiculous? Like, how did it not go in? But I, I actually think it was just pretty good defending and, and couldn't quite pierce that very last Lincoln wall so great stuff Lincoln hit the post as well so arguably came the closest to a second goal I think it was house from a set piece as well uh, so bad day for Ipswich particularly with Argyle winning particularly with Sheffield Wednesday winning George they went to Cambridge which I'd have said is a tough place to go didn't look like it here they were they were comfy as hell yeah it's a bit of a weird one what's happened with Cambridge um you know, obviously focusing on on the winning team here, and, and Sheffield Wednesday have a good value for their win, and they they look um, as you keep saying week in and week out. They may not be quite as flashy as as Ipswich, but they are or or, or Plymouth Argyle for that matter. But they 
as certainly a team who have a very consistent performance level and seemingly know how to win. Uh, but for Cambridge, things have unraveled in a, in a very strange way. You know, the season started well and unlike other good periods of Cambridge form under Mark Bonner, um, the numbers were pretty good as well. They, you know, they weren't, um, didn't look like they were particularly running hot. It looked like they were, you know, winning the games where they were, where they were deserving of winning and, and being the better team and creating better chances. But uh, they've lost four games in a row now. Um, the fixture list, of course, hasn't been particularly kind to them in those four games, um, having played Derby, Ipswich and uh, Sheffield Wednesday. So three teams we probably anticipate will be in the top six. But um, uh, And then the other one was a 2-1 loss at, at Bristol Rovers. But you, you do wonder sometimes if a run of tricky games can somewhat derail your season, uh, had to go down, uh, the belief in, in what you were doing, the conviction, the confidence kind of uh, ebbs away. So it's going to be a test now for for Bonner um, to, to get his team back in the, you know, Getting back on the front foot, they they host Port Vale next up on on Saturday, which is again the, the kind of game they should be winning, and they were winning previously in the season. So, um, yeah, I mean it, it's not worth getting worried about them. Maybe you know those of us who thought they might be um, the joker in the pack towards the top end uh, were a bit premature, but um, but they've they've certainly dipped a, a fair way since the early early start of the uh, of the campaign. Lee Gregory at the double, uh, looking fit and sharp and. If he's fit and sharp and playing in a team that's creating a lot of chances, he's going to score 20 league goals. I'm pretty confident of that. He's only got three at the moment, so some way to go. But that's what I'm expecting if he if he stays fit for the rest of the season. I think for Wednesday, you know, they're third at the moment, but only really because the top two have been so strong. I think for now, if you can, and you're a Wednesday fan, you have to try and ignore Argyle and Ipswich. You have to try and ignore the league position specifics, whether you're first, second, third or fourth, I, I don't think that's important at the moment. Just focus on your own performances and results, which have been objectively very, very, very strong. You know, Wednesday are, are over two points per game, eight clean sheets in 14. Uh, they've scored two or more in eight of their 14 games as well. Their underlying numbers are, are strong, could probably get a bit stronger feasibly like they did last season. And there's no obvious reason why they wouldn't um, with the manager, with the squad that they have. So I think all's going pretty well. Uh, they have played the other five teams in the top six so far. They've lost three and drawn two and then nine games against teams outside the top six, nine wins, most of them utterly, utterly dominant. So, you know, if that's going to continue, even if they drop points against those around them, uh, if they win all the rest of them, they're going to be in pretty good shape. At Wickham three, Peterborough one. George, this one, I, I would call it a sort of online sniping derby because uh, it harks back to the old 1920 points per game league decision system which sent Wickham into the playoffs and, and Posh missed out ever since then there's been a lot of wonderfully petty snide snipey stuff from both sides so Wickham will have been delighted to get the win and in the manner of it as well uh, having gone behind uh, early on to uh, a very very nice strike from Harrison Burrows um but yeah it feels like a big week for for Gareth Ainsworth and for uh, for Wickham you know he maintained a, an impressive level of confidence early in the campaign even though results and performances were poor um but they've got two wins against Oxford and Peterborough in two very different ways you know the classic away win of, of getting an early goal and sitting on it and, and seeing it out and then coming from behind um, to win 3-1 uh, at home to a team who will be challenging, I'm sure, at the top end of the table, um, you know, who have promotion aspirations themselves. Uh, another brilliant, I mean, you wouldn't have thought when Alfie Mawson signed for, for Wickham that we'd be raving about his assists every week. But I uh, loved his composure, um, you know, breaking in the in injury time, picking up the ball on the left-hand side after 
the posh keeper had come up for a corner and rather than doing what 99% of us would do in that position and, and trying to score um, from uh, the halfway line with the keeper out of his goal, he just carried the ball forward and then just rolled it square to Anis Mameti. And even though the keeper was back, it was obviously a much easier opportunity. And Mameti sat, sat the keeper down and rolled it into the bottom left-hand corner. Job done, three points. So, um, yeah, well done to Mawson. Mameti's very good season continues. He is someone who uh, I think is probably going to be uh, attracting some interest in January, I'd have thought. Um, but yeah, but Wickham certainly showing now that um, anyone who wrote them off did so uh, probably a bit too early. Fleetwood nil, Shrewsbury one. George, you picked oh, Fleetwood. You picked Fleetwood to win this one on the betting show. You shrews, you lose. Why? I mean, when you spoke about MK Don's Plymouth, why didn't you say, George, you picked Plymouth as your best bet on the betting show? And you just decided to call me out on the one that lost. I didn't have a pun for that. Yeah, not not quite apples and pears, is it? Um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it was um, a, a lovely goal from Tom Bayliss, just a player that I love, and I'm, I'm very happy uh, to see him performing so well consistently because um, I've been mocked by some for for really uh, pushing how good I thought he was when he got his move to Preston, where he didn't play any football. Now he's back playing regular football again, and I, and I maintain in a team where I'm not particularly sure he he suits the way they like to play. But when he does get on the ball in those areas, he is, he is classy. And it was a lovely little shift and, and finish into the top right-hand corner. The only real moment of quality in, in what wasn't a, a great quality game. Um, yeah, Fleetwood are just one of those sides where they are, I mean, they're, I'm not concerned about them at all because they are um, very solid, but they're, they're struggling to score many goals. Um, so when they go behind in games, especially against a, a Steve Cottrell side who, like Gareth Ainsworth, is so adept at setting up a team to... Um, to protect a lead, it was always going to be hard for him to get back into it. I wish Shipley's shot had gone in the goal rather than hit the post because that was a beautiful move from Shrews. Um, passing football full of confidence, vision, understanding. You know, the, the style has been really the only question mark this season. The results cannot be argued with at this point. Uh, and that was some pretty sexy football. Um, you know, I should also mention that was more or less their only foray forward in a second half where they faced quite a lot of pressure, blocked quite a lot of shots and had Marcus, Marco Morosi to thank for, for his seven saves. Uh, Cheltenham won, Bristol Rovers four. As I say that, I'm wondering why this wasn't higher in the running order. Not sure. I'll hold my hands up there. It's not because I'm embarrassed that a few weeks ago I said I was really worried about Bristol Rovers. Um, although I did say that. And since then, they've picked up 10 mm. points from four games. I'm sort of the, the only reason I can still sleep at night on this front is that the general response from Rovers fans was yes, us too. Um, but things have massively improved. Uh, I think you can point to a couple of things here. The returning from injury of defenders, uh, Gibson in particular, Thomas, who I think was suspended rather than, uh, yeah, suspended rather than injured. They've made a huge difference. Defensive three that we spoke about, who, who was it? Who? Glenn Whelan and, Gib- uh, and Gordon in the 6-3 defeat to Lincoln. I mean, it just looks so different now when you've got players playing in their natural positions. The midfield three of, of Coots sitting at Rossiter and Finley buzzing around him uh, is working very well. And then up front, it's just looking great. And it, and it all kind of comes back to Aaron Collins, who has 14 goal involvements in 14 games. Uh, the absolute star of this team. It's so exciting to watch. Uh, you know, they've got Loft, Marquis, Coburn all getting minutes and, and their job kind of occupying defenders um, physically and just letting Collins run amok. That's what he's doing. Um, uh, and he did so here in this game against Cheltenham, you know, helped by the fact that Cheltenham's defence were sort of resemb- more resembling statues than 
human beings, but um, you know, just a really exciting uh, array of attacking football. Some good goals scored, a set piece goal as well. Uh, and Bristol Rovers now heading into a very tricky run of games, full of confidence and, and well away from the relegation zone. Now uh, it's Argyle Wednesday and Derby up next for them. And while you know you might think, gosh, that's that's pretty tough trio of games. I also sort of think if this group of players can stay fit. If any of those opposition teams drop their levels even slightly, Bristol Rovers are the sort of team that can cause them big problems. So I look forward to that potentially happening over the next few weeks. Okay, League Two to take us to the end, a league where nine of the 24 teams are on less than one point per game. We're just under a third of the way through the season. It's quite confusing. Um, Almost all of them have sat their managers. uh, And there's another one to talk about. Uh, George, let's go straight to bad cop here. Well, I don't know who I'm giving it to because I'm going to talk about Gary McSheffrey, who's left um, Doncaster. This might look quite odd on paper to those who, um, you know, look at the league tables in uh, the EFL and don't really follow the what's going on and think that they can make opinions based on pure league tables. I mean, we're getting close to the table doesn't lie stuff here, but they are, you know, they're 12th in the, in the table. They had a quite a decent start to the season in terms of results. But anyone who's been watching Doncaster this season, uh, or I'll actually change that, anyone who's, who's been following Doncaster basically since um, the turn of the year will know that things haven't been good enough. The recruitment in the summer was was poor. Um, I think a lot of fans felt like they didn't get the players that they needed and those they did bring in weren't of the requisite quality. Um, they picked up a lot of points early on in the campaign, but the performances... Um, weren't particularly good and if anything the performances got worse and the uh, results got worse as well and the final nail in the coffin was a um, was a 3-0 defeat against Carlisle that, that could easily have been more um, so that is kind of the the bad cop story but you, you pointed out to me in the press release this morning talking about the caretaker positions right this is a quote from the Doncaster website head professional development phase coach Chad Gribble and youth development phase transition coach Paul Green will oversee first team training until a new appointment has been made, supported by the existing remaining backroom staff. Now, I can only assume the reason why we haven't had the remaining existing backroom staff listed is because they didn't have enough space on the website. Because those, I mean, and this is a proper, you know, I'm a real football man rant here, and it's not the case because I like modern day structures in football, I get it. But I want to give bad cop to those the names of those positions, the names of those roles. Like if we take Chad, I mean Chad Gribble, head professional development co- phase coach, like Paul Green, youth development tr- phase transition coach. Now I'm going to make a case for the fact that a few of those words mean the same thing. You know, for anyone who did you know A level English, I'm taking out the red biro and I'm crossing out all the unnecessary words that, that are being written here. Because first of all, youth and development. Like youth development is something, but youth and development kind of mean the same thing. But then you go on to transition. Surely development phase and transition are exactly the same thing. You know, that is basically the, the definition of transition is a development phase. So I don't understand what they're doing with these, with these things. Basically, head development coach Chad Gribble and youth coach Paul Green mm. would suffice. Ramped over. Well, I feel like you've missed another one, which is the existing remaining staff, or was it the remaining yeah, existing yeah, staff? Yes, yes. Sorry, that is also <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> well, good good luck to them all, particularly 
Chad Gribble, the Gribbler. I thought the <laughs> I thought the quotes on McSheffrey's sacking were interesting in that they were just had a bit more detail and reasoning than you often see. Uh, Chairman David Blunt said, while results so far in Skybet League 2 have been largely positive, there has been a growing concern over the standard of performances in matches and a lack of progress between games. We feel this is threatening our ability to achieve our stated goals. Uh, we've also been disappointed that our wishes for a particular style of play and overall identity, which we've clearly laid out over the summer, have not been brought into effect in competitive matches. We're confident the squad has, that has been assembled is more than capable of challenging for promotion with an entertaining and attacking approach and have reached a consensus that change is required in order to ensure that we have the best chance of doing so. Um, Gary McSheffrey out at Doncaster. Um I always felt they had the strongest squad of the teams that came down of the four, but still not one where I thought like, oh, well, you know, nailed on automatic promotion contenders. But even in the good start, as you've referred to, and it's actually kind of hinted at by David Blunt there when he, when he admits results have been good, but standard of performances have been bad. You know, there was an uneasiness at what we were seeing, at the, the, the uh, sustainability of injury time winners or equalizers. And we're at the point now where that's gone. And Donny have faced the most shots from open play, conceded the highest XG from open play, and they're 17th out of 24 for open play shots. It's not good. It's not been good enough. And Gary McSheffrey's has paid for it with his job. So it'd be interesting to see where they go next. Uh, let's quickly touch on Carlisle, who thumped him. Uh, good performance, good win. I wanted to highlight Jordan Gibson, who starred here with a couple of assists. Uh, his numbers in terms of both dribbling and chance creation are top tier league two numbers. Uh, and that's notable because I think I don't, people slag off the standard of football in, in league two. And, and sometimes I think it's Sounds. a bit unnecessary. Uh, but I also think it's fair enough to suggest that in league two, you often get a player with good vision and creative instinct, but who maybe is a bit slow or, or needs some space to operate and lacks physical skills and maybe, you know, can't compete at higher levels because of that. Or you might have a great dribbler, like a pure speedster or a powerful runner that can carry the ball well or beat a man, but whose final ball is lacking. There aren't many that do both well for the obvious reason that it's a blend of skills that every team wants. And so most people who can do both play higher. Now, Jordan Gibson is doing both. He is dribbling the ball at a very high level. He's creating chances at a very high level. And he's currently League Two's best mixture of those things, I think, with, uh, with honourable mentions to... Theo Archibald and to perhaps Johnny Williams of Swindon as well. Uh, and the narrative around Gibson and maybe the explanation as to why he's not playing at a higher level was always that he was his own worst enemy. You know, run-ins with managers at Bradford, which meant that he never got a, a proper run into the team. Um, suggestions of a, a questionable attitude when things weren't going his way or his team's way, even when he was playing over in the League of Ireland. Well, he started every league game so far this season. Paul Simpson clearly loves him. He's getting the best out of him. And Carlisle and Paul Simpson and Gibson are all benefiting uh, from it. And uh, it's really, really good to see. I know, George, that you certainly over the weekend took a look at Carlisle, then took another look at Carlisle and went, hmm, hmm. Yeah, I think because this has been one of a handful of games this season where Carlisle have been really, really good, where <clears throat> I'm not saying it's been the case consistently, although you know, I would point out again that they've only lost one game this season and that came back in August away at the league leaders in Stevenage, which they lost 2-1. Um, but there have been a few occasions, uh, one of which was 
uh, on opening day where they uh, gave Crawley one of the biggest 1-0 beatings I've ever seen in my life, where when things click for this, for this Carlisle side, normally at home, um, they are very impressive. And I think when you have a team... Paul Simpson is a manager that I've had a lot of time for. Um, you know, he's he's achieved massive success at League One and League Two level before. He's worked in the in the England um, youth setup as well. You know, he is not a, a a dinosaur manager at all. I think he's a progressive coach and and a successful good one at that. Who certainly understands the club and has a great relationship with the fan base. Um, I think when you know you've got a, a team in Carlisle who, when they're at their best, are one of the best who've only lost one game this season. I think they are very much a dark horse for for, for to, what, to be right there towards the end of the season. I also like, you know, Stretton who scored the brace. Um, I think he has something different. They've got a kind of clutch of, of four strikers, really, who all offer something a bit different in Dennis Evanson and Patrick as well. Uh, and to have four complementary strikers who all offer something different, who can all score goals, um, is a pretty strong position for a League Two club to be in. So, um, yeah, I, I think, and, you know, Moxon's clearly been the, the star so far for them this season as well. Uh, a brilliant signing in, in the summer. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to like with, with Carlisle. Callum Guy scored a nice goal from range. Him and Moxon have both scored two each from outside the box this season, which is uh, all a, a sort of nice addition to a steady diet of, of attacking football and goals. Uh, a, a good cop is Tramia, though, not Carlisle. 3-0 winners at home to Crew on Friday night. Makes it five wins in a row without conceding a goal. They've gone from having seven points from eight games to having, uh, what is it, 22 from 13, just outside the playoffs. I think Dylan Simeu, Simeu, aha, as they sing at Prenton Park. I think he might be the most adored loanee in the whole EFL right now. I'm sure there'll be people thinking, no, no, I really love our loanee. Trust me, not as much as the Super White Army love Dylan Simeu. Aha. And I just wanted to give credit to, to Mark and Nicola Palios here, really, uh, rather than talking about players that we've spoken about quite a lot in the last few weeks and giving more credit to Mickey Mellon, who we've tried to give credit to in the last few weeks, having you know criticised a little at the start of the season. I want to give credit to the owners uh, because I think this is, without wanting to be premature, a pretty good example of not just sacking a manager because there's been a month or two months of bad results. It's always worth remembering, from our point of view, that there's... Owners generally, especially if they're hands-on, have more context than fans, have more context than the media. They're there day in, day out, talking to the manager, discussing with the manager good or bad results. They've worked with this guy for many years. They have a good idea of his qualities. They've both worked in football for a long time. They know what he's like day to day, leading the team, doing the job that they hired him to do. And clearly, they might have been of that belief that that this was a very new team with a dramatically reduced average age that maybe deserved a month or two of, of grace, I guess, before they really started judging progress uh, and, and they're benefiting from that because there were strong calls to sack Mellon and there are always strong calls at any club after a month or two of bad results to sack, 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 to try something else. And I think to not do that actually takes a lot more guts than sacking a manager. And I don't think there are enough owners willing to show a patience and understanding, I guess also a belief in their own ability to hire people um, mm. and a strong constitution when things are bad um, and when things are in the eyes of, of some kind of irreparable and, and where something has to be done. So, yeah, I wanted to praise the owners and I want to see more of this really. You know, 14 of the 72 managers that started the season have been sacked already in 10 weeks. 
twenty percent of the of the managerial pool employed on the July the thirtieth are now not, uh, and it's not good, and it's not natural, and there's also no evidence, as far as I can see, that sacking your manager guarantees to improve the health or prospects of, of an EFL football club beyond the next week or two. And even that's not always guaranteed. So if you can't see further than the end of your nose, your ability to make decisions is going to be impacted and that's going to impact the team that you own, the team that you're in charge of. So there you go. Uh, an amazing run for Tramere. They're away to Harrogate next and then three home games in a row. Could keep going, this. Could keep going. Stockport 1, Grimsby 3 George, the two teams that came up from the National League last season, there were 17 points between them in the National League. Now there's 10 points between them, but the other way round. Grimsby, the winners, very happy camp at the moment. Yeah, almost like football isn't an exact science and things can change, isn't it? Um, mm. Yeah, we both put this up as a, you know, we both uh, laid, so said that we didn't think stop, but we're going to win this game on the betting show. So good that came off. Um frustrating I'd have thought for Stockport fans who'd have hoped that the win at Bradford would have been the springboard to finally mount that promotion challenge it's interesting because we always like to point out and remind people that um, no one has ever been relegated the season after being promoted from the National League or the conference into the Interleague 2 but similarly there always seems to be a massive overreaction as to just how good the team's that win the National League are, <laughs> where always it seems the money bag, money bags, uh, runaway winners at the top end are always installed as first or second favourites. And it very, very rarely works out that way. Um, and that has been the case with Stockport this season. Uh, and for, for Grimsby, I think it's testament to their recruitment in the summer that was smart. And certainly to, to Paul Hurst, you know, it shouldn't be surprising that Paul Hurst is a better manager or at least looks to be a better manager at this stage of his career than, than Dave Challoner, given... Hurst has, has, you know, done more than oversee half a season of promotion out of the National League. You know, he he took Grimsby here before and he did unbelievable work with Shrewsbury. And yes, things didn't go to plan elsewhere. But given, you know, the opportunity to build his own squad and implement his ideas, um, he is proving yet again how good he can be. And uh, yeah, a 3-1 win at Stockport just shows how far they've come. And um, yeah, I mean, they are, uh, we both spoke about it on Thursday's pod. They are a very good League Two team and are proving it basically every week. If they could get their home form sorted and, and win more games at home, then then they would be um, further up the table and they're already in a pretty pretty good position. Do you want to tell me about Salford nil, Bradford 1 or Mansfield 2, Walsall 1? Probably let's talk about Bradford, I think. Mm. Andy Cook scored another goal in what was, you know, I mentioned there, Stockport being frustrated that they weren't able to, to continue a good run of form. We've seen uh, recently Salford have had their own little run that's made us think that maybe they are going to be um, a team who can break into that kind of top three pack. Um, you know, the, the away win at Northampton um, certainly was impressive in itself. Uh, but a defeat against Bradford, who themselves is kind of, you know, it's, it's basically these teams around the top are, are, are all pretty pretty well matched between each other and this time it was Cook with a uh, you know a, a decent finish to win the game it was a game of pretty few chances um, Salford were pretty disappointing and that having gone behind um, they could barely create anything they had three shots in the game only one of those was on target um, had a lot of possession um, but could find no way through and, and that was you know, I think anyone uh, looking for ways to stop Salford can probably use what Bradford did pretty well you know let them have the ball sit off them and, and defend with a low block and, and they won't be able to break to, to break them down uh, because yeah Salford couldn't really lay a glove on on Bradford even though they were at home 
good performance. Although I should say, I mean, Henry did hit the bar with a, uh, you know, he is luckless in front of goal at the moment, but that was pretty much the only decent chance. I'd like to have seen another angle of that one to see whether it might have bounced down over or on the line. Ooh, not given. Not given. Big performance from Romani Critchlow, who came in at the heart of the Bradford defence uh, because Timmy Odessina was dropped. Poor performance against Stockport last week. Critchlow came in. Key to the goal, winning a big 50-50 on halfway and then carrying it, sliding it through for Cook. Um, exactly what you love centre-backs doing uh, and, and performing well in defence as well. And Harry Chapman's performance caught my eye as well. Uh, I think he is looking like he's growing into his, his role at Bradford and, and hopefully, well, not hopefully, I'm pretty confident he will win tight games for them with the quality that he has. Um, good signs at Bradford. Very, very strong, comfortable, confident uh, at the moment, particularly out of possession. Uh, Mansfield did beat Walsall the early game on Friday, Saturday. Uh, it was a strong start from the Stags. Obviously, Walsall were without Danny Johnson because he's on loan from Mansfield. I uh, felt that might hinder them. Um, I guess it did and it didn't. I mean, Mansfield went 1-0 up and then Walsall really drifted back into it. I was impressed with their response at the start of the second half. In uh, Sorry, in, in the first half in particular. And they got back into it. A rasping shot from Bennett, the right wing back, that took Pim a bit by surprise. Great strike. But Will Swan was the game changer here for Mansfield. Came off the bench, just had a huge impact, an injection of, of energy, um, physicality, not in the sense that he's the biggest and strongest dude, but he puts himself about basically constant movement off the ball in behind peeling out wide uh, and he thumped home a header from an Aikens cross to win it for, for Mansfield so um, a, a home win not a hugely comfortable one uh, but a home win nonetheless for them George Wimbledon nil Sutton one is a an historic fixture for the two sides most specifically for AFC Wimbledon because in 2002 uh, AFC Wimbledon's first game since the shambles that was Wimbledon FC's move to Milton Keynes was at Sutton, a friendly, a 4-0 defeat to Sutton at Gander Green Lane. They've never been in the same league since then until now. So is it a derby? Is it not a derby? It's quite geographically, it's quite close. Whatever the case may be, it was a, it was a pretty spicy affair. Sutton came out 1-0 winners and, and impossible to argue with that, really. Yes, I mean... Johnny Jackson was on the the ITV highlight show and, and he called it a derby. So I guess we better go with that. But um, you can see that he was also very frustrated um, with a couple of things that he felt went against his side. Uh, you know, Josh Javison missed the best chance of the game, um, hitting the ball wide um, or kind of skewing it wide from six yards when it was probably easier to score. Uh, and then the goal itself, Jacko seems to think it was a foul on, on the keeper. I mean, it was pretty tenuous you know the, the idea seemed to be that the, the Sutton player had pushed the Wimbledon defender into the keeper who then knocked the keeper off balance uh, yeah I mean maybe it was pretty hard to see from from the from the clip but um, I think it's probably quite rare that you're going to get those uh, rightly or wrongly I don't think it was a, a blatant mistake um, but I'm sure when when you feel like things are going against you you would just love one of those decisions to go your way and, and, and alleviate the pressure just a little bit um, because especially in the second half when they were behind. Um, yeah, the, the Dons really struggled to, to find their way back into the game and uh, and create much to to, to reclaim um, any kind of victory, you know, and it's probably made even worse by the fact that Sutton, having been so consistently good for, for their basically whole stay in the EFL, um, came into this one off the back of probably their worst run of form so far, yet we were able to, to get the victory. I really hope that AFC Wimbledon are, are willing to stick by 
Johnny because um, we want to see him do well. Um, but there's no denying that things right now are, are not going the way that he or, or anyone involved with the club would want. Would want. Crawley 2, Newport 1. Um, feels nice to talk about a Crawley win and to say that they were the better side as well because I think in their yeah. only, only other win this season we were, we were actually pretty rude about them. Uh, so it does feel nice <laughs> to say that. This was a game between two teams with uh, caretaker interim managers. Um, Lewis Young, the, the Crawley caretaker manager, looks at the very least pretty popular with the players because after the first mm. goal, they all ran over to Lewis Young, gave him a big old hug, which is good to see. Uh, he is brother of Ashley Young. Um, he was a player at Crawley for seven years at the end of his career, straight into a coaching role. And here he is leading the team uh, in the interim. And it was all quite classic interim manager gets a first win, first up stuff, I think. He, he even said in his post-match, he went back to basics. And he also said something which I, I found really quite funny and interesting, where he said, George, I wanted us to be fierce, intense, front foot. And then he paused and went, and what formation did most people play when they were growing up? 4-4-2. 4-4-2. So that's what he did. Simple enough with the roles. Trying to build partnerships across the pitch. Hess and Tyler and Powell in midfield. Naderton and Nichols up front. I think Sarula and Fellows looked good down the left side. He changed the goalkeeper. They got a rare set-piece goal. They took chances at good times. It was just classic. Interim manager comes in, goes 4-4-2, and, and his team wins a match. Um, and, and on top of that, I would just say that Fellows... I've mentioned him a couple of times. I'm very excited about him. I mean, he's been playing for a a very underperforming team, but he is, yeah, he's got very eye-catching, close control, speed when dribbling, uh, when he darted in behind to get onto the, the through ball in front of the goalkeeper and tee up Tilly for the first. And you know, he played right wing back under Betsy. He played left midfield here and, and really starred. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of him. And not such a good day for the other caretaker manager here. That was Darren Kelly, uh, Newport County. Uh, Darren Kelly is the director of football of Newport County, and he, he took charge of this one. Uh, it didn't go well. It didn't go well. Sorry, sporting director, not director of football. Uh, as you can imagine, I was pretty sad to see Roberry sacked last week. It was just after we'd recorded. Uh, I, I don't think he's a bad coach or a bad manager, but performances were undeniably bad. Results were bad, um, not improving either over the last few weeks, uh, and losing home games to that extent is always going to uh, cause problems for you. So I think... I think the most critical I'd be about James Robry is that in the last few weeks, as happens to a lot of managers, it just felt like he was just chopping and changing players, style, just desperately trying to find something that works. And I can understand why you'd do that, but it just made me think maybe he had slightly lost his grip on things. So, you know, I personally don't think that the sacking of Robry will automatically make Newport better uh, or move them towards the top half. In fact, I think they they have to be pretty careful and make sure the next appointment is a, is a good fit. Um you know, it seemed like they were looking mid to long term. They were trying to build something. But but of course, um, that often doesn't survive a, a really poor run of results. So with Newport, they've had a strong, what, five years in and around the top mm. half of League Two. But I don't necessarily think that's what you'd call a, a natural position for them or a guarantee for them. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to use, I don't want to be over dramatic, but I, I really, I just think they really need to make a good appointment here. It'd be interesting you know who the latest name being linked is Gabriele Cioffi is available. <laughs> if Gabriele Cioffi has a uh, cult status for a positive sense in this podcast, um, this man, I think it's fair to say, does not. Uh, Mark Cooper. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
knows the level. Yeah. Rochdale beat Barrow 2-1. Liam Kelly, my sweet prince, with a curling precision to set them ahead. And um, he's playing higher up, which I think is is good, which I enjoy playing as a basically as a 10 with, with Ball and Diego Raga sitting behind him. I think that at this level probably gets the most out of Kelly, um, who who is a bit like one of those players I was kind of referring to earlier when I was talking about Jordan Gibson. I think he has a higher level of technical quality and vision than mostly two players, but he doesn't get around the pitch that quickly. So I think, um, you know, trying to use that and, and get him at the top of the pitch, um, feeding the, the wingers who are, who are running in behind, let the midfield battle be waged by others, because I don't think that's where Kelly's going to thrive. Uh, it is the wingers that, that I think are probably the most interesting for me in this uh, Jim Bentley 4 2 3 one You've got Quigley, who's, who looks like a great fit for the system, was a good deadline day pickup on loan. Um, perfect as the sort of pivot as a number nine. He's not going to run in behind loads. So I think having Devante Rodney, Odo, um, Tyrese Sinclair, another option uh, out wide as well. I think those are, those are quite good options. And Bentley's just quite quickly built a team that, Looks like it makes sense, and it's just mm-hmm. nice, nice to be breaking down some Rochdale wins uh, and a team looking competent. It's uh, he started with Carlisle, Leighton Orient, Northampton, and they didn't win in his first three games against good teams. Uh, since then, one 0 wins at Colu, at Newport, and now a first home win in the season. So really positive stuff uh, for for Rochdale, and I hope to see more of it, particularly uh, with one of my favourite players in the EFL, Liam Kelly, at the heart of it. Uh, not long to go now, George. Tell me either about Swindon one, Colchester nil. Or Harrogate two, Hartlepool one. Let's talk about Harrogate beating Hartlepool because Harrogate have had a really bad run recently. Um, you know, their two wins this season came on July the 30th and, and August the 16th. So it's been a pretty barren two months um, for them. Uh, and this was, I mean, it's, it's such a weird situation at Harrogate because Simon Weaver a you know a transformative manager in the history of Harrogate Town uh, purely for a positive reason but because he is the owner's son it is a weird <laughs> dynamic when things aren't going well and I think for other managers in other situations this would have been a massive must-win game we have no idea what Simon Weaver's job security is given the relationship with his father. Um, is he unsackable? Would he still have been sacked if they lost this? I've got no idea at all. But in terms of, of their season so far and the manner of the performance and the win itself, this was this was really big. Um, you know, they were, they've been really poor from an attacking standpoint uh, for, for the last few weeks, which is bizarre because last season they were so open. It feels like Simon Weaver, um, you know, has, has lost some, well, his, his side have lost a lot of their attacking verve in an attempt to try and shore up the defence, similar, I think, to my club this season, who also play in yellow. It's, it's kind of a similar story where after shipping too many goals, there was a big focus on, on trying to plug that gap. And, and in doing so, they've lost um, the attacking vigour that they had last season, which was a key reason for their good start to the season and them being pretty well clear of relegation. Uh, they seem to have that back here. Um, you know, they created lots of chances. They had the better chances. They, they went 2 little up in uh, in the first half and they continued to, to, to have opportunities in the second half. Um, I've got to say, though, Despite Hartlepool's pretty poor start to the season, um, Josh Umara is really fun. I mean, that is an outrageous finish for the for the consolation goal. Uh, it's his seventh goal of the season. He seems to just love scoring consos towards the end of games, which is quite fun. Um, but he is a player that I am enjoying watching score goals. I'm really glad you were going to say that. I'm really glad you did say that because I was going to say that. Seven goals in a thousand minutes. Surprise! That doesn't make. Surprise! That doesn't annoy you, knowing you. I thought you'd be like, "Nah, that's my line." No, it's fine. 
What's mine is yours. Uh, yeah, seven goals mm. in a, in a thousand minutes for a team who have only scored twelve in fourteen, and the bottom of the table is is very eye catching. Uh, Swindon one, Cole you nil. Not a good game this one. Um, there was a big chance for Jeffka in it, and a, a fantastic save from Hornby in the Cole you goal. No doubt that Swindon were the the better side, but still didn't play particularly well. Cole you offered next to nothing really going forward, and the goal just summed it all up. Pretty hilarious ball across from Johnny Williams. The defender missed it. It just hit Shade on the foot. Uh, wasn't a shot. Just, literally just a meeting of ball and foot and dribbled into the goal. The the winning goal that the game deserves. That was painful. Yeah. Uh, and, and fair winners, uh, albeit Swindon will need to be better uh, in other games against better opposition. Johnny Williams is on is on lovely form recently, which is, is always good to watch because everyone loves lovely Johnny Williams, don't they? Uh, Jill's won, Stevenage won, had a bit of spice. Steve Evans heading back to Gillingham. Neil Harris having put together some pretty strong quotes when he walked into Gillingham. And and Steve Evans played, quote, bingo in his post-match. A couple of sentences, a couple of paragraphs. It's basically like, like you'd built an AI bot words generator that just says Steve Evans type things. That's basically how he approached that one. 1-1 one, one in the end. Uh, and Orient nil, Northampton nil with basically what looked like quite a harsh red card for Ben Fox. Uh, therefore, I think Cobblers come out of this with plenty of credit, really. Defending their box really well in the second half and uh, earning their point playing with uh, with gusto. Both teams now, three without a win, Orient and Northampton. Thank you very much for listening to this Monday pod. Huge thank you to Betfair for sponsoring it uh, and sponsoring every Not The Top 20 podcast this season. We're very grateful for their support and yours as well and your ears. Go out. Well. Don't know why you're saying your ears and they've been off there.